What's up, everybody? Welcome, friends. Season 10 of the Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast, a podcast on decolonizing and deconstructing Christianity, where I invite guests who will come and speak to their expertise on all of those pieces of deconstructing and decolonizing and how we can just be and live and be whole. That was season nine on embodiment and mental health. This is season 10, where we invite authors. Season 10 already? That doesn't make any sense. Of course it does. Been working hard all summer to provide you with interviews. And since I know so many authors and cool folks who have written books, I thought, why not bring them on the show? I like to do that. Bring on authors, friends, and new friends to share about their books. It's curious how so many books are familiar and they resonate with my own book on When We Belong, Reclaiming Christianity on the Margins. And I think that's because there's a shift happening within the Christian landscape on how to be, how to operate, how to just live out our whole selves. Things are changing for the better, especially for folks on the margins. Welcome. Season 10 begins with a bridge episode featuring the voice of Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. Episode 68 is a bridge because Dr. Walker-Barnes, her latest book is called Sacred Self-Care, which is one of those accessible books that has daily practices and embodiment practices for self-care. Well, we, we talk about that book, but not only that, I've been looking to get Dr. Shaniqua on the podcast for some time. And if you've read my book, then you have also noted there are some references to Dr. Walker Barnes's book, I Bring the Voices of My People. So we also talk about that book. Unfortunately, this is just an hour-long conversation, and we kind of kept on going. Like many of the guests on this show, they bring deep expertise, and I'm so appreciative of Dr. Shaniqua for gracing us with her presence and giving us her time. Don't forget to rate and review the show and share it widely. That's the primary way of how this podcast expands its horizons and gets into more listening ear holes. Thank you for doing that. Just a word on this episode. I forgot to press record, so you still get both of our voices, but mine comes through the Zoom, so it's not as clean as it normally is, but we'll pick back up in the next episode. Without further ado, Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes. Let's begin season 10 on authors. Dr. Shaniqua, welcome to the Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I am more excited. It's not a contest, but I am because then we were chatting off air that I would like to, if time permits, hit on all sorts of 
different places and spaces that might seem disconnected, but they're not. They're in your wheelhouse of expertise and and from decolonizing Christianity to embodiment to power and intersectionality and race. <laughs> Let's do it all. Okay. The very first question that I ask all guests is to situate themselves to the lands on which they are currently on to give listeners a sense of where are you? So Dr. Shaniqua, where are you and what are the traditional lands on which your feet touch right now? Yeah. So I'm coming to you today from Atlanta, which is the unceded territory of the Muscogee and Eastern Cherokee peoples. Thank you for that. You use the word eclectic uh, in terms of your expertise and ranging from pastoral uh, practice, practical theology, psych. Uh, there are a lot of different pieces here. And I'm curious, and this is a question I don't always ask guests, but I asked, I asked the uh, mental health embodiment, a lot of the practitioners and psychologists on that season, I asked them for the why, a mm -hmm. uh, description of why do the things that you're doing in the manner that you're doing and the why, how it bridges to, how does that give you life? Yeah. We, we start with the easy, the easy question. question. Yeah. <laughs> the why, you know, I think Ultimately, I'm trying to save my own life. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> ultimately, that's what I'm trying to do. And so and part of how I do that is by paying attention to experience. And recognizing the way that my experience speaks to that of others, I've learned like, you know, I mean, mm. this is something therapists know if, if one person is feeling some way. There are other people feeling that way too, right? Um, and so I try to give voice to my experience and what, what I observe. Um, most of my work comes from just wrestling with some aspect of my life and trying to figure out what this means. How is this supposed to work? How could this be better, right? Um, and how does this connect with the experiences of, of other people? Do you use the term and this is business terminology now but would you consider yourself when it comes to culture and the responses that that you develop to what is happening in your life as an as an innovator uh, and i use that term as someone who is at the forefront of what others might soon be facing if, if I'm an innovator in that respect, but I think if I am an innovator in some respect, it is in terms of being deeply reflective, right? Um, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I, I'm one of those that believes there is nothing new under the sun. Many of my experiences, my thoughts, other people have had them. I tend to be very introspective and very observant of the world as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm one of those where, you know, my 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 second book, for example, it came from sitting in conversations about racial reconciliation 
um, and racism and the conversation would blow up. And I was the person that said, huh, why does this keep happening? (laughs) (laughs) It's like science. Right. Other people saw it blow up and they saw it blow up all the time. But for me, it was not letting that go. Right. It was I need to figure Mm. out what is happening. I need to give meaning to this and I need to somehow um, guide people, do something that can maybe guide people so that it doesn't keep happening. So I think that's where the the innovative part might come from. Do you think the catalyst to noting what is not working uh, is or are matters of injustice? Or is that too simple? No, it's definitely, it. it, it is definitely the case for me. I think I tend to... Um, you know, I, I tend to see injustice the way um, kind of, um, you know, Haley Joel Osment's character in The Sixth Sense saw dead people. Like it's everywhere and I can't let go of it. Right. I can't just not see it. I can't pretend it's not there. So, yeah, um, I, I am hmm. a person who is deeply bothered by injustice and I'm not content to say this is just the way it is. Right. I, mm. I, I believe, yeah, and I think maybe this is the therapist part of me. I always think things could be better. Right. And I always mm. think that we as human beings can make it better. Like there are things we can do to make this better. It doesn't have to be this way. Right. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Name that. Yes. That's a, that's a cr- critical piece because, uh, you know, anyone can lament over the injustice or the wrongs in the moment, but it is another piece to walk into and this could be better. Yeah. There's a dream and a vision attached to, to that. This could be better. What do you think drives that notion? Because a lot of folks can end with the hardship or they will gloss over the hardship and just operate beneath the surface and let things be as they are. What do you think is driving the, and it can be better? I think to some degree, I am an intrinsically hopeful person. Um, I believe in the power of humanity. And I believe in the power of the Christian story. Right? Mm. And 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 those things together, I always think, you know, if if there's a will, right, we 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 can do this better, right? We don't have to 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 be here. I think also being a, a psychologist, I don't do clinical work anymore, but back when I did, um, I've seen people transcend and transform through the most horrific circumstances. I've I've seen people survive things that many of us would call um, insurvivable, right? So seeing that and seeing how many people actually are so resilient, um, for me, it's a testament to the human spirit. And so for me, I just, I kind of apply that to everything and think, again, if we choose to make this better, it can be better, right? If we have the mm. will to do it, it can happen. Better can look 
different to different people. So what would be a source or foundation to springboard the, the and this may not be the right word, but the parameters of better? Yeah, yeah we have to <laughs> operationalize better, don't we? That's a word. I think, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, for me, that that vision is grounded in justice. And mm, I think mm, my view mm-hmm. of scripture is one, you know, I talk about scripture as the story of God trying to make a, a, a world in which people will act like they were made in the image of God and mm. will treat each other like they were made in the image of God. Mm. And that's my grounding vision, right? And so mm. for me, that is that is shalom. That is that is justice for the widower and the orphan and the prisoner and the foreigner, right? That That's the grounding vision for me in terms of what better looks like. When we operate with that foundation, is it fair to say then your vision or that dream informs all the different expressions and the work, the writing that you do? Yeah, I think all of my writing is an attempt to get to that in different ways and sometimes focusing on different groups, but always pushing towards that direction. At least that's what I hope. That's what I aim for. Um, that that world where, you know, um, to, to use the old um, Black spiritual, where I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's children got shoes, right? That's that's the, mm. the kind of impetus behind my my work mm. wanting healing and wholeness for all of us as individuals but also for us collectively Culturally, in Western, hyper-individualized, you know, celebrating rugged individualism, you can rugged individualize yourself uh, in the pursuit of of a version of healing, of wholeness, uh, finding that mental health, uh, of embodiment. You can keep and hold those things so they are just for yourself. And you can say it, I made it for myself. Yet the self is not disconnected from the world around. It's not disconnected. We are not disconnected from community. There is there is a deeper, wider level when it comes to the healing, the pursuit of wholeness, of all those aspects connected to community, to community. So where's the the bridge here? Or perhaps it's the other way. Where's the disconnect where there is no bridge? in how we uh, culturally, typically, especially if we cling to social media and how it expresses the pursuit of health 
and mental health. And where's the disconnect that says, oh, and by the way, yeah, do you work at you, but you are not disconnected from the whole and the the liberation of the community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so when I talk about the self, I always talk about it as being in relationship and self in community. Mm -hmm. We, we were mm-hmm. created for community. I, I, I believe that, right? Yeah. We, we are not solitary creatures. Um, even our idea of self is shaped in community, right? Mm-hmm. It's shaped mm-hmm. by our family and yeah. our friends and our experiences. So we don't, we, we can't even know ourselves without other people. Um, as a therapist, I'm, I'm a family systems therapist. That's, that was my training. So I was trained to look at the whole family. It didn't matter what they came in or if it was only one person that came in and said, I have this problem. Um, When I worked with, um, especially I would work with women who would come in and they would have issues with like their their marriages and their families. And I would tell them from the beginning, um, there's a way I can work with you where you will be living your best life. Like mm-hmm. we, we can we can maximize all your dreams and your desires, and you're probably going to end up divorced. Ooh, ooh. Or there's a mm-hmm. way I can work with you where maybe we don't do everything you want to do. Maybe you don't achieve everything you want to achieve, but your family is intact and happy. Mm. Right now, my preference is to work with people that second way. <laughs> Because I think people need relationships, right? So I would work even if I had, you know, a mom, as I'm working with her, I'm thinking about her 11-year-old daughter who is watching her Mm -hmm. and who is seeing her example. So I'm thinking because I also don't want that 11-year-old 20 years from now having to come back to me or somebody like me. So how do I work with the mom in a way that shows her daughter a way to live, right? So that's my my idea of how we hold these things together, that we we are never on our own. And everything we do is is interconnected. When when King talked about that web of mutuality, right? I believe that. I believe that all of our functioning somehow impacts other people, whether it is the people in you share life with in your household, um, in on your job, in your church, in your larger community. So that in order to maximize the health of everyone we need to maximize the health of everyone, right? Mm. If I heard you right, did you say that, and, and, and I'm paraphrasing this now, that in our hyper-individualized world that celebrates the, the, the overcomer, the one individual overcomer that celebrates the pursuit of happiness. So even, even in the pursuit, like the individualized versions of, of what health might look like that, that pursuit of quote happiness is in fact fueling a greater disconnection. It absolutely can. I mean, it absolutely can. When we think of happiness as doing accomplishing, well, as being disconnected, right? If we think of happiness as achieving all of our dreams, 
while not being beholden to anyone else. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually a very dangerous um, and a narcissistic version of happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is, it is not, it's not a healthy version of, of happiness. Um, Now it is profitable. (laughs) It looks good. It looks profitable. It looks really good. Um, But I don't think it's, I don't think it's healthy for human relationships. And I don't think it's healthy Mm. for the earth, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like Mm -hmm. the the earth, especially it's it's as if how we've been culturally conditioned to measure what success or what the pursuit of those individualized goals are, in fact, works against mutuality, works against uh, liberation for all works against the land that this is countercultural. like that turns upside down what we <laughs> it's the surface level of what we would say oh i made it yeah and calling us into a deeper brighter place that we cannot yet see or some cannot yet see yeah dang yeah. Okay, maybe I'll pause the podcast there and let folks take some breathing and uh, do a little interlude of piano. Um, sacred self-care, daily practices for nurturing our whole selves. You sort of alluded to it in the introduction of this. I love guides uh, because uh, it, it uh, forces me to stick to a rhythm. Uh, and you named at the start that something was happening at the start of the pandemic where you're like, hmm, I need to fill a gap that seems to be missing. Why did you, or or why such a, what was the drive or dream to put together sacred self-care? Yeah, this book has been a long time in the making. Um, it is actually a continuation of my call to ministry. Mm. Um, my call to ministry happened um, in the middle of a session on prayer and meditation for a group of women at my church as part of what was supposed to be, I think, a six or eight week self-care program um, that turned into um like a year and a half or something crazy. Yeah. Um, and and even then I said, I'm eventually going to write a book on self-care, but I wasn't ready yet and I needed to live it. And so I was living this while also living the story of kind of racial justice work in the church and mm-hmm. church reform, mm-hmm. right? And I'm trying to be attentive right. to my own care and then the pandemic hits, right? Mm. It's um, it's this huge, you know, upside down event. And the next year, 2021, we're approaching Lent and people are talking about giving up and, and, and people were struggling yeah, yeah. with the idea of giving up, right? Yeah. So even before Lent, people were on social media saying, I'm thinking about Lent already and why should I have to give up anything, right? Mm-hmm. And one of, of my own practices for Lent, um, some years I give something up, but some years I take something on. Mm. I decide that there is some practice for my self-care that I really need to focus in on a lot more. And so let me let me do that. So I thought maybe what I should do is invite people in into my practice. And um, because this feels like a year of taking on. Um, and, and for me, 
when the pandemic hit, um, my my belief in self care is is so much. I believe it is is a it's about sustaining ourselves in the midst of um, while under siege. Honestly, I've, I've come to believe we're living under siege, <laughs> under mm-hmm. the siege of white Christian nationalism, mm-hmm. under the siege of xenophobia, mm-hmm. um, transphobia, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like heterosexism, patriarchy, all mm-hmm. of that. We're living under siege. Mm-hmm. So for me, self-care is a survival strategy. So when the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. I knew we're under a lot of stress right now. There's a lot of anxiety. We're all triggered, right? Our stress responses are triggered. How do I mitigate that? I need to deepen my self-care. So like live even more fully into it. And so when we were coming up onto that Lent, that first Lenten season of the pandemic, I thought, let me just invite people to do what I've been doing. Um, and let me figure out a way that I can try to um, operationalize self-care in these really small chunks that I can put out on Instagram mm. for the, mm-hmm. you know, the six and a half weeks of, of Lent. Um, but that was really how, how it be- began, really paying attention to my experience and saying, huh, maybe other people can benefit from this too. Mm-hmm. But did you do a, like a Lent newsletter or was it a Facebook group with it's, it started out the first year, it was an Instagram challenge. And then the second year we moved to a Facebook group. Yeah. yeah where okay. We were, we I were practicing that. these things. Yeah. And that was, <laughs> okay. I mean, was... and it was literally about midway into this, that um, a friend of mine, a ministry friend of mine out on the West coast, she texted me one day and she was like, you know, this is a book, right? Yeah. It's and I, was like, <laughs> I was like, you're right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like I'm literally writing yeah. a book, like a little section every That's day. Good. Yeah, yeah. That's good. You mean you didn't think of how can I monetize this? <laughs> As you're writing about self-care. Think of all the Instagram posts. That's no. Oh, that's cool to connect the dots. When it comes to books and tangible, you've used the word operationalize ways of accessing rhythms of self-care. I think for many of us, we have seen and have tried similar rhythms, maybe even books before. And one of the pieces there is you can leave your head in the book. You know, it it, it can become just an exercise where you have read, uh, especially I speak only to myself, where I just read it and now I'm doing self-care, um, which which is a facet, yet is it is incomplete. I want to tease out aspects of embodiment yeah. and how embodiment factors in both to the work that you've done in sacred self-care, but for someone who is just starting out or at, at the beginning of that journey of learning more about their own body and the different connection pieces and intersections, how do we pull out something that is an exercise in the head and put into practice where it's touch and feel and, and somatic experiences? Yeah. So I broke the book up into these, you know, well, 49 little practices, um, in part because I wanted people to not just be in the book, like head in the book, like read about it, Mm -hmm. 
and then just kind of go on. I, I wanted people by the end of the book to have engaged in significant behavior change, right? Mm-hmm. To actually embody self-care mm-hmm. um, in their own lives. And, and so again, therapeutically, how do you do that? Well, you scaffold it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> you, 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 you introduce one way of thinking and then you follow that up with some type of practice. You get people to engage on that. And then you build on that the next part. Um, and you build on that and you build on that. The other thing you do is you deal with resistance. You know, um, again, as a, as a therapist, especially a family therapist, with family therapy, there's always someone who doesn't want to be there, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's not like individual therapy where most of the time people want to be there. With family therapy, there may only be one person who thinks the family should be there. Mm-hmm. The rest, mm-hmm. you're dealing with resistance. So then it becomes, mm-hmm. and how do I break through the resistance, right? Mm-hmm. So- So a lot of the book is around what are the obstacles to self-care? Let me deal with those one bit at a time, right? And let me come at those in different ways so that I'm reinforcing the lessons over and over again so Mm. that people are living it, not just thinking about it, right? But you're actually integrating it into your day in a way that you experience mastery, Mm. right? Um, So, you know, if you ever try to do major behavioral change, it's hard, like most of us can't do like an overall, an overhaul. The other thing I do that I think is really um, reflective of embodiment is I try to think about the ways it could go wrong, mm-hmm. right? Um, the things that undermine our self-care that are outside of us. So the reality is in our embodied lives, we don't always have an hour in the morning to set aside for meditation and and exercise, right? We have crises, we have health issues, we have just crazy schedules. And so I kept thinking about what can people do that is really simple, right? And it's going to take you five minutes or less. And so all through the process, I'm thinking about what is life really like and what can you do that it's, it's doable again, right? It might be challenging a little bit. It might require some intentionality, but yeah, you can fit this in, in a busy work day because this is five minutes. Give yourself five minutes, right? So I, I really try to think about, you know, sort of where the rubber hits the road. Like this is not some idealized way of yeah. thinking about self-care, but this is self-care for people who are managing jobs and families and health and normal just reality. living in a yeah. right normal reality yeah. right and so that's part of the other way that I was thinking uh about that some of the practices are very much about getting in touch with your body right mm-hmm. um one of the early ones is stand in front of a full-length mirror and just look at yourself and just mm-hmm. and say and 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 repeat an affirmation to yourself mm-hmm. as you look at yourself mm-hmm. right but also recognizing, you know, some people that's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. And so if that's hard, that's okay too. back off, do what you can, Mm. right? That it is that sort of respect for embodiment and the difficulties of embodiment for some people.
I really appreciate the word you used and the uh, identifying resistance when it comes to embodiment. I never used that term. Of course, I would use it across different applications, but when it comes to embodiment, I can picture myself uh, going through your practices here. And when it calls to a practice of embodiment, that there will be ironically, an immediate bodily response of resistance to do that. What do you think is the why behind the body? And not all, I'll speak only for me, but the body is resisting embodiment. Yeah. Well, I think there are uh, a few reasons for that. One, kind of culturally, especially for, for Christians, but I think Anybody who's been in a world that's been touched by Christian thought, right? Mm. Even if you're not a Christian, um, the way in which our tradition has learned to think of the body as lower than Mm -hmm. the spirit, Mm. right? Mm. And to think of the body as sort of this like inconvenient thing we have to deal with until we're released from it, Mm. right? We almost (laughs) treat the body as a prison for our spirit. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It is very. And, and and I think so because of that, many of us, you know, um, you know, people talk about like the natural man versus the spirit man. And I'm always like, well, what is that? Yeah, like, yeah. Huh? Just separate the no. Right. This idea that we can separate our ourselves. And so that's that's part of it. And so much of of, of Christian tradition has focused on subduing the body. Yeah. And then, of course, once you layer um, racism, sexism, heterosexism, all sorts mm. of other things. Mm. Some bodies are considered even worse than mm. others. Mm-hmm. And you and, absorb and so, that, yes. Right, and you absorb that thinking, right? So that part of our quest for holiness is um, transcending the body, mm. right? Um, and then, you know, academic achievement, it's about also suppressing the body, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's about get, being up in your head, yeah, yeah. forgetting your body. If you're a good student, um, you probably have problems with embodiment mm-hmm. because you're taught to live up in your head, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're taught to suppress the needs of the body so you can pursue your your intellectual mm-hmm. interests. And so, I think because of that, a lot of us have issues with just being in our bodies. Yeah knowing our bodies even, right? We we are socialized away from our bodies. Um, we're, we're socialized to be, you know, out in the world or, you know, women are often socialized away from their bodies, but towards the bodies of others. So to take care of other bodies. Um, mm-hmm. Men are often socialized away from all bodies. Uh, mm-hmm. And just be like out in the world dominating the marketplace, right? Or something (laughs) like that, right? Uh, (laughs) And so a lot of us have learned to think Mm -hmm. of our body as sort of this afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to how else do we experience life? Yeah. Yeah. We can't experience life outside the body. We we are our bodies, right? Um, And so that the body actually is much more deserving of care than many of us give it. Yes, yes. The the shaping and the forming of how we view our bodies, there are so many different inputs uh, that uh, malformed inputs 
that are forming our picture of ourselves. So let's take a step back into I Bring Voices and speak to what you alluded to of the sources of malformed inputs to the body, which are the intersections of power. And you named some of them. For listeners, and I think uh, especially Canadian listeners, how does a womanist ethic and worldview view the malformed intersections of power that flow into both the individual and community? So I think in her article, the, the article that Kimberly Crenshaw first wrote explaining intersectionality, she gives a great example of this. This was a real example where she was trying to get data on the experiences of, of Black women who had suffered domestic violence. And she just wanted to know, um, this was out in, in LA, she wanted to know how many, right? Mm. How many Black women mm-hmm. um, are experiencing mm-hmm. violence? And, and so she went to, I think it was the Sheriff's Department and they wouldn't give her the data. And they said there were two reasons why they get, wouldn't give her the data. They said, um, the the race oriented civil rights groups don't want us to give you this data because mm-hmm. it might make black men look like they are batterers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then she said, and then they also turned it. And the the women's rights groups also don't want you to have this data because it might make it look like domestic violence is only a problem of black women, mm-hmm. right? And they wanted to, they were trying to show that domestic violence hit everybody across um, race yeah. and socioeconomic yeah. status, right? And it was really interesting because you have these two justice-oriented groups of people, mm-hmm. right? But who have these interests that compete against the needs and interests of black women. And so she she was trying to figure out how you name that and, and came up with the name intersectionality. So womanism, um, and, and, and what she was doing, she was naming something that Black women's groups have been doing for a long time. So she just gives title to it. She doesn't invent it. So womanism had been around for a, a long time. Black feminism had been around for a, a long time. Um, and we're kind of doing this work um, of saying, if we start from the perspective of Black women, What does that reveal to us about justice that we don't see if we only start from the perspective of Black men or the perspective of white women, Mm -hmm. right? That there are some unique, there are some unique situations and experiences that Black women experience that it's not just a matter of take race at gender and you'll get the experiences of Black women. There's something unique Mm -hmm. about our Black womanness um, that it exposes um, ways in which injustice works, right? Um, mm. And so it's 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 knowing that experience and starting from that experience, it helps us to encapsulate more people if we start from the experience of, yeah, what are Black women and other women of color um, 
the womanism is specifically about black women, but there are others, right? There's there's um, Mujerista theology mm-hmm. for our um, Latinx sisters, right? There's Asian American feminisms. There are other feminisms. There's indigenous feminisms. And so I think there are all ways in which we are all trying to articulate what is the unique experience of this group and how does that inform the whole? If it's helpful, I can talk about that, like especially in terms of I bring the voices of my people, right? So for 10 years, (laughs) I sat in Christian racial reconciliation circles. And I would be sitting in meetings and conferences, and I don't know how many dialogues, but if it had to do with racial reconciliation in the church, I was there, right? (laughs) Um, I was trying Mm -hmm. to be there. And I would sit there and I would think, something's missing, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. their understanding Mm -hmm. of race. And finally I realized, oh, the voices of women of color are missing, right? And the voices of women in general. But there was this way that of talking about racism that centered the experiences primarily of Black and Latino men and said, this is what racism looks like. And these are the things that we mm. need to face. Mm-hmm. And so there was always talking about the criminal justice system, which is important. Occasionally, you'd hear talk about the educational system, um, but mostly it's centered around criminal justice and economics. And I kept thinking, but what about the issues that disproportionately affect women like health? Right? Um, are we never going to talk about health? Are we mm. never going to talk about internalized oppression? Are we never going to talk about colorism and the whole beauty industry yeah. and how that feeds off of, of racial insecurities and exploits racial insecurities for, for, for women? Are we never going to talk about that? And so I realized that the the whole framing of the the conversation in these Christian spaces was centered upon men. It -hmm. was also assuming that racism was a problem of separation. Mm -hmm. That makes sense if you think about men, because part of what racism did was it, it, you know, said, Black men, you're not allowed in these spaces. Go over here. But that wasn't the same story for Black women. We didn't have a problem of separation from white people. Why? Because we were the nurses. Mm. We were the domestic workers. We were the cooks. We were the maids, right? Mm. And so (laughs) when people kept saying, oh, they're racist because they don't know us. And I'm thinking, that's not true. Yeah. Like for the women in my family who were domestic workers, the women in my family who um, are um, still often... Um, nursing assistants in retirement mm-hmm. homes with white people, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, it is not a situation if they don't know us. Mm, they're experts. And, but because it had been framed on men, right, it was a completely different experience. And so, um, and even when I would talk to the women in my family who hadn't read about racism mm-hmm. and, right, mm-hmm. didn't have access to these books, mm-hmm. I would say they think it's a problem of separation. And they would just kind of, you know, you know, kind of tut tut and be like, that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Like, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Right. And I'm like, exactly. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. There was sort of a, a blip of interest around racial reconciliation, which has pettered out over the past couple of years, you know, the summer 2020. 
uh, increased. But what you're naming here and what you named in your book was that this intersectional approach of, of racial reconciliation has to be centered on the experience of women of color. Yeah. And part of that is because, you know, so so what those of us who take this intersectional view say is that if you start with women of color and 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 it's important to include all women of color in that. Right. You can't just kind of generically say, let's have one um, one racial gender group and let that be a stand in because there's some Mm -hmm. there's some uniqueness Mm -hmm. among our experiences. Right. So black women. Um, who are the descendants of enslaved Africans have a very unique story in this country, right? As do indigenous women, Mm -hmm. right? As do Latinx women, as do Asian American women, right? We all have unique stories. And so you need to include all of those stories. But the idea is that uh, with women, you're going to capture a broader view of the story. But here's the other thing. Women are socialized to be relational. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about racism, we're never just talking about us. Mm. We're always talking about men mm-hmm. because we are also going to be concerned about our brothers and our mm-hmm. fathers and mm-hmm. our sons. And and Ooh. so when yeah. you bring women, you are bringing everyone. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I go, mm-hmm, because I interrogate my own perceptions and how I've operated around attacking the intersections of race and white supremacy through through my male lens. Uh, when it comes to reconciliation, as we face off against whiteness and a racial identity that is intricately tied, as you named, to white supremacy, is it possible to, in community, well, of course it's possible, but in community, come together in proximity to white folks or whiteness and get to a place of reconciliation where there's liberation for all? Or is white, well, whiteness will always be an impediment, but uh, I'm curious to know, here's the problem that's in my head, that it would be easy to silo or compartmentalize each of these racialized groups to say, look at the great work you're doing for yourselves. Whereas if we're speaking of liberation of all, and those who are thinking of all people, it it needs to stretch beyond that and not be pigeonholed. Yet the power systems of whiteness predominantly will try to compartmentalize. Where's the bridge to stop this it, it can uh this be a more holistic approach of of like a multi-ethnic community coming together to figure this out together or is it perhaps a matter of in white folks you have to take a seat to this i'm trying to tease out what the pragmatic responses are to this in our day and age yeah i think it's actually maybe a third option which mm. is there is a way in which we all have this work to do mm-hmm. around liberating ourselves yeah and renegotiating our our relationships but white people have a a unique work to do mm-hmm. for 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 white people they got to figure out how to remake whiteness and because whiteness 
is 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 a racial identity that was created mm-hmm. to police white supremacy, right? To defend and police mm-hmm. white supremacy. It is intrinsically tied to that. There's a question about the extent to which it can be untied from 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 that history, right? And I think that's the work that white people have to do, right? They have to figure out how to remake whiteness so that it is no longer a cultural identity bent on domination and exclusion. And that's a work that white people have, I think there are small, very small groups that are starting to come to that work and saying, okay, wait a minute, we need to do our own work here. Um, We can't Mm -hmm. just look to people of color Mm -hmm. to to do this work for us. Um, We can't just talk about racism. There are ways in which we have to fundamentally learn to be different. Um, So that work needs to happen. At the same time, there's a lot of work that people of color have to do within each of our groups. Yeah. Yeah. But also between each of our groups, Mm. between Mm. us and whiteness, like it is a multi-layered work. And so Mm. it takes a little bit of of everything. But reconciliation cannot happen until the oppressor is transformed. Mm. Right. The 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 lion and lamb can't lay down together. Mm until the lion stops trying to eat the lamb. Mm, mm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. The lamb isn't the problem here. Yeah, right? yeah. There's no both sides here. I mean, come on, There's look at the lamb. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's some unique work the lion has to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You try to both sides the lion and the lamb. Dang. Okay. We got to throw that on a t-shirt. Something. Get that out there. That's the title of your next book. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, you, you use the term remake, where I would use the term divest from. Uh, why remake? Like, like I'm skeptical. Well, yeah. Can whiteness be remade? Why? Why? Get, get, divest from that. Get, get rid of it. No. Trash. Bin. No more. Yeah. And, you know, honestly... Well, I I don't use the word divest from because I don't think white people can stop being white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you. (laughs) That's why I. In when it comes to words like decolonize, it's like you can't decolonize from this thing you automatically inherit. Right. You always just inherit that by going outside. Right. What do you decolonize? Yeah. Okay. You make. So yeah, and hmm. so, but I but I share. As much as I say that, I share the skepticism. Mm-hmm. I'm skeptical, even as I say it, I'm like, but can <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. But can, like, yeah. did um, to borrow from Lisa um, Lisa Sharon Harper's um, the the subtitle of her book Fortune? Like, did mm-hmm. race break the world? Mm-hmm. Like, did it break it? And we can't fix it. Like, we there mm-hmm. is no remaking it. Um, or is there a way? And I, and I try to look at the ways in which people of color, right? That, that's an arbitrary term. Yeah. But I try to look at the ways in which we try 
to make an identity out of this thing that was forced on us, right? Mm. Um, like the term Black or yeah. African-American yeah, yeah. or Pan-African or Asian. Like none of yeah. us came, became any of those things yeah. until yeah. the you know the conquerors yeah. came yeah. and said, yeah. y'all are all now one people. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> all one people. But we've tried mm. to make something out. We, we, we've been trying to say, okay, and what might, an African-American idea. What is Pan-Africanism, right? What the diaspora, right? Mm. We're, we're using those terms to talk about the, the different diasporas and, and these identities that we say we find some commonality here. What is that for whiteness? Is any of it good? Mm. Um, I, I mean, I think there's some wrestling that the answer can only be start to come up through the wrestling. Mm. Is, is it recovery um, for some people is, is, you know, destroying whiteness and recovering ancestral identities, right? Is it like I'm letting go of my whiteness and I'm learning what it means to be um, an American of Italian and Scottish yeah. ancestry, right? Is yeah. it recovering that? Uh, I mean, well, those, those identities were part of what caused the problem. So... <laughs> Yeah, what is what is the thing? I don't know. Um, I, I won't pretend to have the answer, but what I do think is white people have to wrestle with it and have to wrestle deeply with it and have to wrestle um, with the accompaniment of people of color who will call them on their shit. I didn't ask you if I could curse on this podcast, but... It's, yep. <laughs> I'm not going to take it out. But we'll need to do that because, mm. quite frankly, whiteness can't do the work by itself. Mm. I don't know if whiteness knows how to operate in any other way other than power preservation. That's the yes. <laughs> right. So it takes somebody else to see it and say, hey, oh, wait a minute. You're, you're doing that thing. Right. Mm-hmm. You're doing that thing. You need to operate differently. So it it, it will take that. Yeah, and, and that's where the skepticism comes from, because when we shift to other powers or like an institution, like a religious institution, that thing is designed to keep things the same. And although yeah. there is a pathway and and I learn I'm learning more of how to be more open to to these pathways of collective liberation. But when things are designed from the onset to just preserve its own self. I wonder if the effort is better placed, and this is the tension, just doing the new thing with my yeah. people, folks to get like, and and that sort of extends into, and we've run out of time here, but that extends into, do I want to save this thing, let's say the church, and work at it and put my body on the line, or do I want to be part of shaping and forming the new thing with folks who have processed out of that too? Yeah. Like and and it's they're not in the same places. And 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 that's okay. Uh but there's there's some trend setting and there's also some letting go of of the old ways. Yeah. And I don't know where we land in all of that other than to say it seems as though liberation is found on one particular side of that. And not in the preservation of all the things that ALS. Yeah. 
our time's done. I really wanted to get into uh, your sense of decolonizing Christianity and the Sunday service and all that stuff of where you're at. Um, another time, maybe your next book and I'll read all about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will say just, I believe that reform movements take both energies. Mm-hmm. They take people who leave and say, I'm done with the way things are, are and I'm going to go off and, and do something new. But I also think they take people who stay mm-hmm. and pound yeah. on the walls from the inside. Yeah. Right. I think it's the, the, the pressure from both sides is, is what can reform. But of course, I think some of us have to have the question, you know, to, to how much energy do we want to put into reforming yeah, existing yeah. institutions as opposed to using that energy towards creating something new. Yeah. Yeah. That's always the tension. That's when we're from my own place in space of church planting. I don't, don't call it that anymore, but it's like, if I'm going to put in energy, am I going to put in the same energy to try to change a thing that don't want to change? Or am I going to try to create something new where I can belong in my own skin? Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a third way as well third-ish way that I'm learning more. And this is tied to an episode um, with Enkem and and Defo. And then the third way is sort of being the bridge or ambassador to those folks seeking change and working with them while you're getting paid to do it, I might add. (laughs) (laughs) Working with them for those incremental shifts uh, unto a new and better thing. Yeah. But I, I don't know. That's hard. You have to pay it a lot to do it. Yes. Put your body on the line. Where can folks find you? And do you want to shout out anything, including your books? Yeah. So, um, yeah, people should go get the, the books, especially the new one, sacred self-care, which is available wherever books Mm -hmm. are sold. Um, right now. Um, and then um, you can find me. I am still on Twitter, yeah, which yeah. I'm not even sure what we call it these days, yeah, but it's always going to be I'm Twitter. still there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm there. Uh, um, <laughs> and on Instagram at Dr. Shaniqua. Um, but mostly people, the best way to follow me is through my, my Substack, drshaniqua.substack.com. It's the easiest way to kind of that's where I'm I'm putting more of my energies these days. Yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of different pieces and content. Uh, I'm going to say content. Dang. But newsletters are coming out and I love it. Yeah. Thank you for the time and for sharing all of your wisdom with us. Thank you. 